here in 1 Samuel chapter 20 this morning as we continue our journey through the life and psalms of David. Where we last left David, he was on the run, and he is still on the run. And last week we looked at Psalm 59, which was David's reflection and his cry to the Lord in the midst of Saul, the king of Israel, trying to kill him and trying to kill him repeatedly. We turn now to what happens immediately after that episode while David is still being pursued by Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 20. And as I read this, what I want you to focus on is the security. Where do David and Jonathan both find their security? It's a long chapter. Follow along with me as I read. Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, what have I done? And what is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again. Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at table with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field to the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city. For there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father to harm you, harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field, and Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow, or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed towards David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father, to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you, as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die, and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon and you will be missed, because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand and remain beside the stone heap. I will shoot three arrows to the side of it. As though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the boy, saying, Go, find the arrows. If I say to the boy, Look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them. Then you are to come, for as the Lord lives, it is safe for you, and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, Look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat at his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side. But David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought something has happened to him. He is not clean Surely he is not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. 
And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, Why has not the son of Jesse come to meal either yesterday or today? And Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, Let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me go away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled a spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him in the morning. Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. And as the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and he came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace. Because we have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between, me, be between me and you, and be between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to see this morning the eternal security that was a comfort to David that was a comfort to Jonathan, was a com- and is a comfort to us. Father, I pray that you would strengthen me for your word, that I might deliver it with clarity, and that your words would shape our thoughts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It was a little over a century ago that a band of brave souls became known as one-way missionaries. They purchased single tickets to the mission field without the return half. And the way that they did this is that they packed their few earthly belongings, not into suitcases, not into travel cases, but they they packed their few earthly belongings into coffins. And then they set out to sea. And as they sailed out of port, they waved goodbye to their loved ones. They waved goodbye to everyone that they'd ever known. They wave goodbye to their home. They wave goodbye to every security and comfort that they ever had. And they wave goodbye knowing that they would never return home. And if they did return home, they would return home horizontally and not vertically. Why? Why would somebody give up their security? What would come over someone? to pack all of their belongings into a coffin when they had nothing to gain to a people that they were going to from whom they would gain nothing from. A.W. Milne was one of these such missionaries. He set sail for New Hebrides in the South Pacific, knowing full well that every missionary that had gone before him to the tribe of headhunters had been murdered by them. And he knew that his likely fate was also to be martyred by these headhunters, hopefully not too long after he arrived. 
And so his coffin was packed and he set sail. And he arrived in the New Hebrides and for 35 years he lived among that tribe and he loved them. And when he died, the members of that tribe buried him in the middle of their village and they inscribed this epitaph on his tomb. When he came, there was no light. And when he left, there was no darkness. But again, what would come over somebody to give up every earthly security? Why would somebody pack their bags and belongings into a coffin and set out to a people that they did not know, that they did not have a relationship with, from whom they had nothing to gain? Because they knew that security is not found in living for me in the establishment of my kingdom. It's a truth that David and Jonathan knew well also. The self-sacrifice in this passage is rather astounding, actually. For both David and Jonathan knew that their security was not found in living for the establishment of themselves and the establishment of their own kingdom. We see this clearly in three different episodes here in this passage. The first one actually sets up this passage. It's in chapter 18. It's immediately after David had returned from conquering Goliath and the military victories that he had. If you remember at this point, David had been anointed king. Saul was still the first king of Israel. And while Saul was the first king of Israel, Saul's son, Jonathan, was the one who had had the most military success. He was also one who actively sought and trusted in the Lord. But then God rejected the kingship of Saul, and the Lord anointed David to be king. And David's first act, first significant act, was him conquering Goliath. And immediately after conquering Goliath and bringing about the victory and securing uh, the, the physical security of Israel, David returns home, and the passage reads this, that the soul of Jonathan was knit to David. And then it says this, Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him, and he gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Now, why on earth would Jonathan do this? This does not make anything any sense. Jonathan is the crown prince of Israel. Saul was the first king of Israel. Never has there been more security, humanly speaking, in Israel than there had been currently under the reign of Saul. Never had one family had as much wealth and power as the family of Saul had. Never has anyone in Israel had the inheritance that Jonathan was about to inheritance. It was about to inherit. But Jonathan renounces his position and transfers as far as as far as his own will goes. He transfers the right of succession to David. Look what he gives him. He transfers his robe. What's his robe? The robe that signifies that he is the crown prince. He transfers his armor, not only his political position, but his military position. He transfers his armor, which would indicate that he is the crown prince, and his sword, and his bow, and his belt. Everything that would designate Jonathan's position in the kingdom, his power, his rank, his status as the crown prince, Jonathan hands over and gives to David in a covenant. Nobody would do that. You don't transfer your rights to the next up-and-comer. What you do if there is a new up-and-comer is you slaughter them, you dispose of them, you get rid of them. You don't transfer your rights and your claim on the throne to them. It was ludicrous. It was insane. It's a little bit like, let's say you're putting your house on the market. And the realtor comes to you and they tell you your pri- the, the price of the house. And you say, you know what? Let's put it on the house for 50% below market value. What would the expression on his face be? You're an idiot. Why are you giving up all this security? Why are you giving up all this equity? Why are you giving up all that has been established and all that you've saved for? It's the dumbest thing possible. So too for Jonathan, what has come over him? Why would he be willing to give up the security that he has when he has nothing to gain and everything to lose? And what's even more amazing is that Jonathan does it a second time. We see this in chapter 20. 
After David has been on the run, he comes in before Jonathan and he says, David says to Jonathan, Jonathan, what have I done? What, what, why, how have I sinned against your father? Why is he against me? Tell me. If I've done something wrong, kill me yourself. And Jonathan says, no, my, dad, my dad's not trying to kill you. It's not like that. I would know. And Jonathan says, you don't know. Truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. And notice Jonathan's response. Whatever you say, I will do for you. So John, David impresses upon him, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me into your father? Or why should you bring me to your father? David's saying to Jonathan, listen, if I've done anything wrong, kill me. But Jonathan's response to David is he says, not only am I not going to kill you, but let us formalize our commitment. Let me secure your position." Let me make sure that you are protected. And Jonathan promises David's protection. Who does that? You don't do that. Especially if you're the crown prince. I mean, and even Jonathan now had his out from his earlier foolish commitment. I mean, if he wanted to get out of it, Jonathan's not trying to kill David. Saul's trying to kill David, right? He could get out of it. He could reclaim the throne at this point. What Jonathan should have done, as goes conventional wisdom, is kill David. And what Jonathan did was politically stupid and even politically suicidal. He has no political career left or hope of it because of what he is doing for David. And again, the question is asked, why? What would come over someone that they would give up this kind of security? That they would give all of this up when they have nothing to gain and everything to lose? For Jonathan, it was because he knew that security was not found in living for me and my kingdom. But it was true for David as well. And this is our third episode where we see this remarkable sacrifice. Is that after the two of them solidify and renew their covenant with each other, David also rejects living for me and my kingdom. David rejects living to secure his own, himself and his own throne. And so Jonathan very unusually presses this upon David. He says to him, if I am still alive, Jonathan to David, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love for my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth, and Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. Who's that? That's Saul, Jonathan's father. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him. And he loved him as he loved his own soul. What's significant here is that not only does Jonathan ask for it, but David gives it to him. David gives him an oath to preserve Jonathan and his descendants. This is the height of height and depth of folly and stupidity. I mean, when a new regime comes into town, the name of the game is purge. Solidify your position. Eliminate your rivals. And the most common way of solidifying your position is by solidification, by liquidation of all of your rivals. It's just how it works. Everybody knew it, everybody believed in it, and everybody practiced it. Everybody except David and Jonathan. Why? What would come over someone to give up this kind of security? What would come over them to do this when they have everything to lose and nothing to gain? It was because David and Jonathan both knew that security is not found in living for me and my kingdom, but it is found in living for Jesus and for his kingdom. Here's how we see this laid out, developed in this passage. And you see it really in Saul's response. David says he's, at, he's being threatened. Jonathan says it's not an issue. They come up with a scheme to find out what's really going on inside of Saul. And the scheme is this, that at the monthly dinner with all the military brass, David's place among the brass is going to be empty. His seat at the table is going to, is going to not be filled. And he says, and so if Saul is okay with that, we know that Saul is not angry. But if Saul is angry about this, we know that Saul intended to do harm. And so after Jonathan gives the response, here is Saul's response. 
to Jonathan. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. You see, Saul lived to secure me and my kingdom. Saul lived for the establishment of his own power of his own security, of his own wealth. Saul lived to secure the prosperity of his children and the prosperity of his descendants and their power and the power of the descendants after them. He, he lived to secure himself. And Paul lived, excuse me, Saul lived believing that security is found by living for himself and for his own kingdom. He seemed to live by the idea that if you want anything in life, you're just going to have to get it for yourself because nobody's going to give it to you. And yet in Saul, we see that the people of this day neither understand the wisdom of God nor the power of God. For Jonathan's stupidity, Jonathan's apparent stupidity made Saul foam with rage. Saul could not fathom why Jonathan was being so utterly stupid. He could not fathom the ingratitude of Jonathan after all that Saul was doing for him. And so, with his face changing shades of purple and the veins bulging out of his neck and out of his forehead, Saul shouts out the only four words that matter, you nor your kingdom. But you... In your kingdom, didn't move Jonathan. God and his kingdom did. Jonathan was not moved to live his life securing me and my kingdom because Jonathan realized that living for God and living for his kingdom actually is and was and is his greatest security. For Jonathan acknowledged that the kingdom of Israel was not his but actually was God's. And that all that Jonathan had and all that Jonathan could do was simply a gift of God that belonged to God that Jonathan was a steward of. Therefore, Jonathan had no claim on any of it. And God could do whatever he wanted to do. And God could give the kingdom to whoever he wanted to give the kingdom to. And Jonathan, strong evidence, knew that God had declared that the kingdom was going to be taken away from Saul and his descendants and was given to David. And having known this, the only right course was to submit to the will of God and to not live for the security of me and my little kingdom, but to live seeking God and his kingdom. So what that meant is that Jonathan then didn't need to live his life trying to build his own kingdom, but to live for God and for his kingdom. And brothers and sisters, it's not really any different for us today, whether you're the crown prince or just an ordinary Christian. That our reigning passion in our life must not be me and my kingdom. The reigning passion in my life must not be for me to find my way, for me to make my mark, for me to get my place in the world, for me to get ahead, for me to build and to secure me and my kingdom. I'm going to press in on this a little bit harder in one of the areas that's absolutely the most difficult for us and most difficult for me as well. This is a letter from the head of a mission agency who himself worked in reaching, um, bringing the gospel to unreached people groups. And it's a little bit of a longer reading, so stay with me. He writes this in in his letter update. He says, I wasn't surprised in a recent trip when during a question and answer time, a pretty common question was asked. With the location that you were serving in, having the with the location you were serving and having the uncertainties that you did, how did you ensure that disease 
and local hostilities did not impact your family. The obvious yet unstated starting point being that things that would harm me and my family were obviously to be avoided. That was a given. No need to even discuss it. He continues. When the family, family values, or the priority of the family is an unquestioned value, everything that puts your wife or your children's safety or even their well-being in jeopardy is obviously not a course of action the Lord would have you pursue. This no longer needs to be confined to physical harm, separations, death, or disease. Today, lost athletic or academic opportunities are simply not thriving, also qualify as things to be avoided. With such a mindset getting traction in the Christian culture, how are we to actually complete the Great Commission? or live as the people of God in any sense. Now, example of those who do not value their lives or their children's lives above all else do exist even today, and I'm not talking about cavalierness, he writes. Yet, sadly, a more common reality is a letter I read from a missionary who was leaving the location God had led them to, in their own words, quote, We will give our lives to full-time ministry no matter where God places us but we don't want to do it at the expense of the family, which through the earnest study of Scripture and wisdom of others, we have chosen to make our first priority. Me and my kingdom. This situation is not rare today. The amount of families coming home from high-stress cross-cultural situations due to family is my first priority and my family is not thriving is today unprecedented. Now, of course, there's legitimate reasons for families to come off of the mission field. Of course there are. But what he's identifying is that across mission agencies, what's happening around the globe is that missionaries are leaving the field because of this in an unprecedented level. He continues, in ages past, missionaries might have been hesitant to state, my kids felt stressed as a reason for leaving where God had placed them. Not so today. Today, such parents may be deemed sensitive and balanced not being task-driven, having their priorities right. He continues. When Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. What Jesus meant was that spiritual growth is inseparably tied to loss, separation, death, suffering, persecution, and hardship. In John 20, we read, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. In speaking in such ways, Jesus is clearly saying he led the way in message and in modeling. Those he is sending, including their families, can anticipate a version of what Jesus endured first. The idea, God called me but not my kids, has commonly been a rationale for some to leave hard situations. As a parent who saw much and counseled many other families, I know firsthand the difficulties our kids can face. I know, too, the blessing on those kids when they are allowed to participate in the price tag of being gospel workers. I dare not oversimplify all situations, but I know, too, that what our own children endured was used by God to bring credibility to his message. And reflecting on this, one of our elders wrote, but the more troubling trend is not people who leave the mission field to reduce family stress, but when we, in a local church context, choose to let the self-chosen busyness in every other area of life lead us to disengage from serving in the life of the church in the name of family downtime. That also is a simple matter of priorities. Security is not found in living for me and my kingdom. It is found in living for Jesus and his kingdom. And counterintuitively, there is incredible, indeed, the most security in our lives is living for Jesus and his kingdom. How does that work? Well, it works the same way that it worked for Jonathan and for David. 
And there's two key words that we need to understand to understand the security that we have in living for God and for his kingdom. The first word is covenant, and the second word I'll come back to. David appeals to Jonathan. He says, therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? David said to Jonathan, he says, there has been a covenant of the Lord. You have brought me into your covenant of the Lord. We see it later that they reaffirm their covenant. He's referencing here what happened in chapter 18, verses 3 through 4. And the word there says that David and Jonathan made a covenant with one another. If you want to dive down into the root words there, what would be the most accurate, most accurate would be is that David and Jonathan cut a covenant with each other. They cut a covenant with each other. Why is that significant? Because when a covenant was made, something was cut. And what was cut is that they would each bring animals, which were expensive. They would each bring animals, and they would make a covenant, and they would cut those animals in half. And they would rip them in half. And they'd put the two halves of the animals on the ground as they would cut a covenant. And what they would say, and the act of doing so, is that the bond of the covenant was inaugurated by the severing of the animals. And as the two of them made their agreement, they would walk through the animals declaring, if I do not, if I fail to uphold my end of the covenant, may I be like these animals. Make me like these severed animals. And God is my witness. Now, when we say God is my witness, or when most people say God is my witness today, that doesn't really carry a whole lot of weight because most people say, well, God is my witness, and if I break my commitment, God will forgive me. God's a great witness. But when David and Jonathan cut a covenant with God as his witness, what they meant was that they were not presuming upon the forgiveness of God, but rather they were realizing the judgment of God. And that if they broke covenant, and with God as their witness, God, the judge, would ensure that the consequences of their covenant breaking would be brought upon their head, and they would be severed like the animals. And so the covenant between David and Jonathan had firm promises and solid commitments. And one of those solid commitments was that they would act one with one another with the second word, first word's covenant, and the second word is hesed. H-E-S-E-D is the transliteration. Say that, hesed. Hesed. Now say it like you're, like, like you're, from, like you're speaking Hebrew, which means you like need to get, like, clear out all your lungs. Like, hesed. Okay, right. Very good, good. And so that's the word we see here underlined. He says, therefore, deal kindly. That's the word hesed. It's the word translated, it's a word that's used over 250 times in the Old Testament. It's sometimes translated as mercy, sometimes as, faith, as a steadfast love, sometimes it's translated as loving kindness. And what hesed has in it, what it consumes is the idea of love and compassion and affection, but not just love, compassion, and affection, but love, compassion, and affection bound with, lo- with loyalty, dependability, and faithfulness. So hesed was not merely love, it was loyal love. It was not merely kindness, it was a dependable kindness. It was not merely affection, but a committed affection. And David and Jonathan, because they had covenant, they not only had covenant with one another, but in covenant, they had chesed towards one another. And so what happens here, what we see playing out in this passage, is that in the midst of confusion and trouble, David overt Jonathan's coming. In the midst of confusion and trouble, David and Jonathan do the one thing that we should do as well is that in the midst of confusion and trouble, what you do is you take yourself to the one who has made covenant with you. Because the one who has made covenant with you, in him there is commitment and there is hesed, loving kindness. So in the midst of the manhunt, David turns to Jonathan because Jonathan, of their covenant, there is a bastion of certainty, it is a safe haven, and in covenant there is hesed. But for Jonathan, Jonathan turns to David. Now, how does that make sense? It's because of who David is. You see, a covenant with David, when Jonathan makes covenant with him, it is not simply a covenant with David, but, a, but because a covenant with David was a covenant with David's God. You see, God had made a covenant with the people of God. 
a covenant that they would be his people and he would be their God. And the covenant first came with Noah, and then it came to Abraham, and God said to Abraham that he would make his name great, that he would give him land, that is, he would give him security. He would establish him. He would bless him. He would give blessings upon him. He would bless him. Why? So that all the families of the earth would be blessed through him. And that covenant that God made with Noah was then recommitted to Isaac, was then recommitted to Jacob, was then passed down to Moses. And that covenant to Moses was then passed on then to David as the anointed one. And so Jonathan knew that God's covenant was not going to be fulfilled through Saul and through Saul's lineage, namely himself. He knew that God would be faithful to fulfill his covenant and it would happen through David, God's anointed one. And by entrusting himself to David... He is entrusting himself to the forerunner of Jesus Christ, the one through whom all of the promises of God are yes and amen. And so it is that the covenant that Jonathan, by entrusting himself to David as the anointed one, is entrusting himself to the covenant God. And here's a description of that God. O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing hesed to your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. And it is in this same God in whom your security is found. That your security is not found in living for me and my kingdom, but your security is found in Jesus Christ and in his kingdom. Your security is found in the one through whom God's covenant is fulfilled. It is found in the one by whom God's covenant has been made. You see, when Jesus gathered his disciples together, and as they were sharing the covenantal meal, where they rehearsed the promises of God, of God's hesed, of his steadfast love, of his mercy, of his faithfulness, of his promise to bring a deliverer and a king who would reign over them for all eternity and celebrating the covenantal meal where they reminded themselves of those promises, Jesus says this, and he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And Likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. What is Jesus declaring? is that the covenant of God is now being fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and that we who take on Jesus Christ, who put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, are now participants in the covenant with him. That we are the ones who are joined to the covenant of God, and not only has God made a covenant with us through Jesus Christ, but it is in Jesus Christ that God bore our consequences for our breaking his covenant in the judgment and the witness of God that would bring the curse of God down upon covenant breakers like you and me was poured out upon Jesus Christ as he was the one who was split in two so that his covenant and his loving faithfulness and his hesed would be known from generation to generation. It is in God's covenant through Jesus Christ, that we now can be found. It is in God's covenant through Jesus that our security is found. What this means, and I'll state it quite simply, what this means is that whether you are a crown prince or a pauper, whether you are a king or a peasant, whether you are an O11 or an E1, Whether you are a somebody or you feel like a nobody, security is not found in living for me and my kingdom. Security is found in Jesus Christ and his kingdom. So let us submit ourselves to him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come here today as one 
who is surrounded by things that promise security. Father, we come here as people, as many people, if not all of us, Lord, who we long and we seek and we work really hard for our security to be in our wealth or our investments or our security to be in the position that we've attained to in society and the respect and esteem that we have among our friends that we're well-regarded or liked. Father, we come before you that some of us try to find our security in the fact that we want to have really, we want to have kids that grow up and love us so that when we get old, we won't be alone. Kids who will take care of us, that we will be secure because we've got a family that is around us. And yet, Father, you know that every one of these cannot and will not provide the security that we long for. Father, you know how ardently we try to secure ourselves in building up me and my kingdom, of living for the claustrophobic confines of my own self-defined little world. And Lord, I spend my days, I spend my energy, I spend my money, I spend my time, I spend my emotions, I spend my effort in so many ways just living for myself. Father, save me. Save me from myself. Save me from clinging to counterfeit securities. And Lord, may we turn and trust and rest and submit ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, in whom you have made covenant, in whom there is hesed, in whom there is unending steadfast love. And you will not abandon us and you will not forsake us, not because of us, but because of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whom we are found. Father, there are some of us here who are still looking for it everywhere else. Lord, would you draw them to yourself and to Jesus Christ? Father, would you fill us with joy for the security that we have in you and in living for your kingdom? And Lord, would that joy not only change us individually, but our families and our church and this community, that your name might be known to the ends of the earth. Hallelujah. Praise Jesus. Amen. As we continue to digest the word of the Lord now preached, let us rejoice that the word of God now sent out shall not return to him empty, but it shall accomplish his purpose and it shall succeed in the thing for which he sent it. Amen. Let us rise and sing to him.
body bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you as our spiritual worship. May we not be conformed to this world, but transform us by the renewal of our minds, that we may know your will. It is good and acceptable and perfect. Amen. You may be seated. Consider these words again from our Lord Jesus Christ as Luke's account of the Last Supper. And when the hour came, this being the night before Jesus was betrayed and crucified, when the hour came, he declined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Hear that again. I have earnestly desired to eat this covenant meal with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And what Jesus is referencing there is he's referencing the cup of blessing. There's the fullness of God's blessing coming, the fruit of the vine, a picture of why are vineyards a biblical image? It's because there's security. It takes a long time to have vineyards. It takes a long time to make wine. It means there's security, that there's stability, that there's prosperity. And he says, I'm not going to taste the cup of blessing, the fullness of the blessings of God, until the kingdom of God comes in its fullness. And then he says, And he took the bread, and he broke it. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Why? Because Jesus was broken, not only to inaugurate the covenant, but to fulfill it. And then he continues. And likewise, the cup again, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And the second time that he pours out the cup is the cup of God's wrath. It's the image that is fulfilled throughout the whole Old Testament that when God's judgment would come, that he would pour out the cup of God's wrath on his enemies. And Jesus is saying that the cup of God's wrath is going to become poured out on me. That for all of your covenant breaking, all of the right wrath of God to be poured out on you is not going to be poured out on you, but is going to be poured out on me. And because it's poured out on me, you can enjoy the cup of blessing and the fullness of the covenant and life everlasting and life abundant here and now. And so he says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Was it really brand new? No. The same covenant that had been going through the ages, but what is new is that Jesus is the one who not only inaugurates it but fulfills it, and that he only not only brings the blessing, but he suffers the curses so that you could have life and have life abundantly. And so it is the Lord has given us this meal as a sign of his kingdom. He says, I tell you, I will not participate, eat of this again, or drink of this again until my kingdom comes. What is it here for to remind us to do? It's a meal for us to remind and to renew our covenant commitment to the Lord. And not only that, but it's once again to confess and to seek first the kingdom of God. It's a meal for us to say that I am, and by participating in this meal, to saying, I am not living for the establishment of me and my kingdom, but I am living for the Lord and the building up of his kingdom. That's what we're committing to here. That's what we're celebrating. That's we're celebrating as a church body that you're not the only one that's done this, but there's a whole church and people throughout, the, throughout the, the ages that have joined together having experienced the grace of God and who are now living for him. So may this meal remind you the covenant and the steadfast love of the Lord that he has worked on your behalf. May this meal encourage you in the present 
to forsake living for yourself and to seek his kingdom. And may this meal fill you with hope that his kingdom is coming. And so, if you are seeking first the kingdom of God, come and be fed and be strengthened. Be encouraged in these ways. Yet at the same time, if you are living for yourself, you're trying to find your security, the establishment of me and my own kingdom, you and your own kingdom. Another way to put that is that you're not trusting in Christ as your Lord and Savior. The Savior deal is pretty good. He pays for my sins. The Lord deal means that he's the boss of my life. And so, if that's not you, then it's good for you to be here. But instead of taking these elements, use this time to cry out to the Lord and to cry out to him and turn to him like Jonathan did and saying, Lord, all that I have, I give to you. I, Lord, I give you my heart. I give you my all. Because all that I am and all that I have cannot give me security. But you, Lord, give me security not only in this life but life eternal. May God work that in your heart today. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would use this meal to be an encouragement to our souls that we would seek first the kingdom of God. Father, thank you for the faith of Jonathan. Lord, who though he did not know what you were going to do through Jesus Christ, nonetheless, he wholly entrusted himself to your promises and to your faithfulness, knowing that you, Lord, are the one true source of security. What a remarkable testimony. Lord, may that testimony be repeated in our midst. Lord, we ask that you would use this to encourage us, to fill us with joy and hope. In Jesus' name, amen.